So we are now going to move toward our passage that we read this morning. Many of you would remember that we read this portion of scripture last week along with um, a little bit more, but we're going to come back uh, here today to this passage and uh, also next week we're going to cover similar uh, passage again, looking at the things that that Jesus said here surrounding the great confession that Peter made that he was the Messiah. So last week we looked at Jesus as the Messiah. And today I want us to drill down into this statement that Jesus made here in verse 31, when he acknowledges that Peter is indeed correct, he is the Messiah. But then verse 31 says, and he began teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and three days later rise again. So that's a verse that I want us to focus on. And I want to begin by looking at the word must. So this passage really as I've been reading it over for the past few weeks. This, this one word has just continued to stand out to me. This word must, th- this is an imperative, meaning the things referred to are absolutely necessary. In other words, they have to happen if the objective is to be attained. And so th- this word must, it's an imperative, but we could even say it's it's beyond an imperative, it's a divine imperative. Because it's God himself, God the Son, who is telling us what absolutely has to happen. That that this, uh, there's, there's no way around this. This is a must. Now, there are several places in the scripture where you can find these divine imperatives. And one way to do it, it's, it's kind of an interesting study, actually. But if you just go to any kind of like a Bible program or on your computer, or you can go to uh, blueletterbible.com, just write in the word must, and, and then it'll give you all the times in the Bible that the word must is used. And as you follow it through, you won't want to look at every one of them, but you will see that in certain cases, these are, again, they are divine imperatives, It is God speaking, saying that this is the way it has to be. Probably the most well-known divine imperative is the one that Jesus gave when he was speaking to Nicodemus. And he said, marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. So you see, it's not an option. It it has to happen. If if a person's going to get to heaven, there's only one way. They must be born again. And so as we look at this 31st verse here, this is, again, it's that divine imperative. Jesus is saying that the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. The Son of Man must be killed and after three days rise again. So here's the question. Why did it have to be so? That, that's a question that we want to address today. 
Why did it have to be that the Son of Man uh, had to suffer, had to be rejected, had to die, and had to rise again? So we're going to answer this question in two ways. First of all, we're going to answer it um, by looking at what theologically orthodox Bible-believing Christians have always held to be the answer. So what I'm going to do in a minute is I'm going to read you um, a statement from J.C. Ryle. We've uh, quoted him before in our study through Mark. J.C. Ryle, just to refresh your memory, he was the first Anglican bishop of Liverpool in uh, 1880. He became the bishop and he served in that role until his death in 1900. Uh, but he's, he was a great evangelical voice in his generation. He wrote a great work on the four gospels and that, that's been passed down from generation to generation. So I've been reading that since I was a young uh, pastor in ministry and I always get greatly encouraged from his insights. And so I, I wanna give us a quote from him because it, it's, you know, many, many people could, could have said this. He just happens to be the one who said it, but it's the, it's the orthodox theological position on this question of why Jesus had to uh, suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. So that's the first thing we're gonna do. And then secondly, we're going to look at what the biblical text actually says. Now, the, bib the biblical text, the reason why we're gonna look at that is because the, uh, the statement from Ryle, although it has biblical text in it, they're not uh, clearly... Uh, acknowledged as so. I mean, they, they are actual statements from the scripture, but there's no like verse reference next to it. So I want you to see from the Bible itself that this is what is being taught. And the reason why we need to see that is because there's pretty fierce opposition in some segments of the church today and in the broader culture uh, to the idea that Jesus had to suffer and die for sin. Believe it or not, there are people in the church today who would actually deny that that is the case. And they would attribute the, this teaching of Christ dying in the place of sinners, they would attribute this to the influence of uh, false religion and they would even uh, implicate Paul the apostle saying Paul he came in and he brought these other ideas into Christianity that were contrary to the view that Jesus had and so forth so we want to look at a few of those ideas and we can see that they can easily be dismissed they are completely untenable uh, when we look at the biblical picture there. So that, that's what we're going to do. And then that'll bring us to the final question. After we find out why these things must be so, the final question is, well, what do we do since these things are so? All right. So here we go. The theological statement. Quoting from, as I said, J.C. Ryle, listen to what he said. I'm just going to read it. He said, why did our Lord say must did he mean that he was unable to escape suffering, that he must die by compulsion of a stronger power than his own? Impossible. This could not have been his meaning. 
Did he mean that he needed to die to give a great example to the world of self-sacrifice and self-denial? And that this and this alone make his death necessary? Once again, impossible. There is a far deeper meaning in the word must suffer and be killed. He meant that his death and passion were necessary in order to make atonement for man's sin. Without shedding his blood, there could be no remission. Without the sacrifice of his body on the cross, there could be no satisfaction of God's holy law. He must suffer to make reconciliation for iniquity. He must die because without his death as a propitiatory offering, sinners could never have life. He must suffer because without his vicarious sufferings, our sins could never be taken away. In a word, he must be delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Here is the center of the Bible. Let us never forget that. All other truths compared to this are of secondary importance. In life and in death, in health and in sickness, let us lean all our weight on this mighty fact that though we have sinned, Christ has died for sinners. And that though we deserve nothing, Christ has suffered on the cross for us and by that suffering purchased heaven for all that believe in him. So that is basically a summary of the biblical doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ. Remember that term, the substitutionary death of Christ, because that's what the Bible teaches. Christ died as a substitute for us, but that is what is radically under attack in certain segments of the church today and, of course, out in the the broader culture. Uh, For anybody who's aware of uh, the gospel message, they would many of them would would come strongly against the idea of a substitutionary atonement. So so that's a summary of what the Bible teaches. So that is the, the theologically orthodox position that all Christians have held from the very beginning uh, to this day. So secondly now, as I said, let's look at the biblical answer, which I already said. It's really the same as the theological answer. We're just gonna look at some biblical text to show that this is indeed what the Bible says. Because as you're gonna see in a few minutes, when I quote from an opponent of this view, this person is gonna say the Bible doesn't teach this. And so people are gonna say that to you. They're gonna say, well, the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus died in our place, that Jesus had to be punished for our sins. And we have to be able to respond to that. So we need to see that it is the, the scriptural position. So, but, but remember, we're, at, we're answering the question why it had to be so. So why did Jesus have to die as a substitute for us? Well, number one, the scriptures declared that it must be so. This is what the scripture said. And, and Jesus himself, after he had died and risen again from the dead, in Luke chapter 24, we have Jesus speaking with his disciples and listen to what he said to them. He said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled that were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus says that there were things written uh, that concerned him in the law and the prophets and in the Psalms. And then he said this, thus it is written, 
And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. So why did things have to be this way? Because the scripture said that this is how it would be. And of course, when we talk about the scripture, we are talking about God. God is the one who spoke. We believe, because the Bible teaches, that the scriptures are not the, the um, ideas of men. The scriptures are not the result of any person just thinking about how God might have done things and then presenting to us their opinion. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that the scriptures have come to us because holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about scripture, when we talk about the authority of scripture, we're basically talking about the voice of God. God said it had to be this way. So Jesus points, first of all, to Moses, to the law of Moses, to uh, the prophets and the Psalms. And he says, in all of those things, it was written uh, about him and specifically about his suffering. Now, we're going to look at one prophetic passage that puts all of the things that Jesus mentioned together in one, in literally in one chapter. Isaiah 53 gives us all of those things, the suffering, the rejection, the death, and the resurrection. They're all in one chapter, but they're not only in that one chapter. They're all condensed in that one chapter, but all throughout the biblical text, there was a message that was being communicated about the suffering and the rejection and the death of the Messiah. And sometimes it was communicated just in straightforward language, telling us this is what's going to happen. But sometimes it was being communicated through the lives of God's servants. You see, like Moses, Moses was a prophet. Not only was he a prophet in the sense that he spoke the words of God, but aspects of Moses's life and experience were prophetic. And the same is true if you go further back in the history to Joseph. So Joseph's prophetic ministry was more his life than anything he actually said. But David also, David was a prophet who prophesied the Psalms. Many of the Psalms were written by David. But David's life was telling a story. And with Joseph, Moses, and David, what is the, the common denominator? All of them suffered. All of them were rejected. So the suffering and the rejection was sometimes, the suffering and rejection that would come for the Messiah was sometimes being communicated through the life experience of these people. But then, as I said, there are those places where it is very uh, clearly laid out. So Isaiah 53 is the great biblical text where the things that Jesus said in verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer, and be rejected and die and rise again. It's all there in Isaiah 53. So let me just summarize Isaiah 53. I'm gonna quote directly from Isaiah 53, not in the exact order. Uh, if you go back and read it, you'll see that I've taken it a little bit out of order. But I've, I basically just switched um, the, the rejection and the suffering because that's the order in Isaiah 53. So listen to what it says. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
He was despised and we did not esteem him. So there is his rejection. The son of man must be rejected. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted. The son of man must suffer. And there is the suffering. But then remember, the son of man must also be killed. And so Isaiah 53 says, he was cut off from the land of the living and they made his grave with the wicked. So there we have his death. But then Isaiah 53 also goes on to tell us about his resurrection. God shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So you have someone who suffers, someone who is rejected, someone who dies, and then someone who actually ends up reigning. And so you see, it's all right there in Isaiah 53. So the first reason it had to be so is because the scriptures declared that it had to be so. And if God says something has to be a certain way, that's the way it's gonna be because God is God. And when, when he speaks, uh, we can just have confidence that he knows all things, ultimately determines how they're going to be done. Uh, nothing God has said can fail or be altered by anyone ever. That's a good thing to remember in our current cultural moment here. Because there, there are all kinds of ideas in the culture that are in conflict with what God has declared. And people somehow seem to think that uh, just because they're convinced that something is a certain way, that that's the way it is. Well, it doesn't work that way. Because God is the one who set things. God, God is the author of reality. And we cannot alter what is. What God has said, what God has declared, it cannot fail or be altered by anyone ever. That is just a good thing to know. So, um, it had to be this way because the scripture said it had to be this way. Secondly, it had to be this way. Jesus had to suffer, be rejected, die. Uh, it had to be this way in order for Christ to fully identify with humanity. So when Jesus comes into the world, now remember, Jesus isn't a sinner. Jesus has no sin. He's not born in sin because he's born of a virgin. He has no sin nature. He doesn't sin himself. He's sinless. But what is he coming to do? He's coming to save sinners. So apart from sin, with the exception of sin, he enters into the full human experience. And as a human being, he is going to experience the, the suffering that humanity has experienced. He's going to experience rejection. He's going to experience death. And when it comes to his death on the cross, this is where we see Jesus identifying to the fullest extent with a suffering humanity. Man has suffered immensely throughout history. Man has suffered because of disease and disaster and injustice, cruelty, torture, heartbreak, death. This is what history is. It's a long tale of suffering and woe. 
Jesus in his love chose to experience the full impact of what sin had done to the human race. So when Jesus says the son of man must suffer, it's really because he must enter into the full experience. See, the amazing thing when you think about what Jesus did, because today people will oftentimes accuse God of injustice, accuse God of being unfair. Why would God make a world that is like the world that we live in? Why would God allow people to suffer and so on and so forth? Those, those questions come up all the time, right? And although we can't give a an definitive answer like, well, God told me this is why he did it or God wrote down why he did it, here's what we can remind people of. Well, whatever the answer is to why God did it, here's what we need to remember. God did not exempt himself from it. And that's what we see with Jesus. He's not exempting himself from it. This, This horrible experience that humanity has had because of sin, Jesus enters into it fully. He suffers. He's rejected. He's betrayed. He's executed. He dies. So with Jesus, the cross testifies to the immeasurable compassion of the Son of God and to the extent of his identifying with suffering sinners. So it had to be so because the scripture said it had to be so for Jesus to fully identify with humanity, but it also had to be so, and this is our main point today, Um, because Christ was suffering vicariously for us, which simply means he was suffering in our place, which means we should have suffered those things because of our transgression, but he suffered them for us. Now that's the gospel. That's what the scriptures teach, that he suffered, was rejected, killed, and he rises again, as our substitute. Remember what I said earlier, that term, substitutionary atonement. That's the big big message of scripture, and that's the thing that people today are very, very bothered by. But I want you to think back to our quote from Bishop Ryle and just a few words that he used. He used the word atonement. He used the word propitiatory, which means a propitiation, which means to satisfy wrath, to pay the penalty for a transgression. That's the idea behind propitiation. And he also used the term satisfying the demands of God's holy law. So God has a law, it's broken. There must be a penalty for the broken law. Jesus satisfies that. Now, as I said, Uh, Although this is the the biblical gospel, not everyone wants to believe that or accept that. Uh, Let me give you a a sample of some of the current opposing views on the idea of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And I'm I'm just going to quote from one person, but I could quote from 20 uh, people today who have, to some degree... uh, um, the public's ear who are saying similar things. But I'm going to use as our sample here today, the Reverend Scott McKenna from none other than Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, No no connection with uh, Steph, but uh, 
So he is a minister in the Church of Scotland. And he's, in, in many ways, he's very typical of many ministers in that, that denomination. He's very typical of uh, ministers in many denominations across the board. Maybe you heard this week about this, this major sort of earth-shattering event among the United Methodists. Now, the United Methodist has been a denomination from way back in the times of the Wesleys. And, uh, but for about the last hundred years, they've been known as one of the seven mainline Protestant denominational churches, which have all become very liberal. They've become liberal in the sense that what we're talking about and affirming, they would reject it. So this week, there was a big gathering, an annual gathering, and it was to basically decide where the movement was going to go in regard to sexuality. And much to the surprise and the dismay of many, they did not go in the direction of uh, where the so-called progressives thought they were going to go to affirm same-sex relationships. They pushed back against it. And they pushed back against it primarily because of the influence uh, of the international aspect of the church, particularly the Africans. And so God bless the Africans who are standing firm on scripture while the Westerners are um, denying the faith. That's really what's happening. But all that to say, those same people who would insist that you should uh, embrace the LGBT agenda and there should be same-sex marriage and ordination of same-sex ministers and so forth, those same people would also be people who would have the sentiments of this person that I'm going to quote from right now. They would think the exact same way about the atonement as this uh, Reverend Scott McKenna does. So let me read to you what um, the Reverend Scott McKenna says. This, this is from a sermon that he preached a few years back. Um, he said this. He said, the theology that says Jesus paid the price for our sins is, in my view, an obstacle to evangelism in the 21st century. It is an obstacle because it depicts God as a potentate who demands blood for offenses he has suffered. Our sins have offended him and he demands a blood sacrifice. I'm almost embarrassed explaining this theology because it is well past its sell-by date and in some sense is quite immoral. It is damaging the church. It does not, listen, it does not go back to the Bible. As prevalent as it is within and without the church, it is time to depart, to ditch this substitutionary atonement from the church. It is time to ditch it because it obscures the real meaning of faith. In the Gospels, Jesus was killed by the Roman authorities because he was deemed to be a threat to the state. He died a terrorist albeit a man of nonviolence. So for this minister in the Church of Scotland, who is representative of many other voices, many voices in this country as well, this whole idea that Jesus died for sins, that's been the gospel message from the day of Pentecost, says it's not in the Bible. I just am curious what Bible he has been reading. Uh, I would imagine it's a similar Bible to what we're reading today. They all say pretty much the same thing. And as we looked at Isaiah 53, is there any way around it? 
Well, I guess for Mr. McKenna, Christ's death, I, I don't know. I, I would like to find out from him just exactly what he thinks about it then. But perhaps uh, it was an unfortunate end to an interesting life. Uh, perhaps uh, a martyr's death of some sort that, that we should just admire Jesus or even as Ryle referred to back in his day that some people wanted to put forth the death of Jesus as just a good example for us. But even though he insists the Bible doesn't teach this, I think we can insist that he is greatly mistaken. And so we can dismiss these and similar ideas entirely by appealing to Isaiah 53 alone. We, we don't even need to go anywhere else. We can, of course, because the entirety of the Old Testament has this truth uh, woven into it. And of course, when we come to the New Testament, it is crystal clear from the New Testament that Jesus died to pay a ransom for sinners. Jesus even used the, that language himself. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. Jesus said, I'm gonna give my flesh in exchange for the life of the world. That, that's pretty clear. So we can dismiss the, this these opposing voices as being completely out of sync with what the scriptures teach. Now, I, I get it if people don't like this message. That's understandable. But let's not try to say it's not the message of the Bible. It is. If you don't like it, okay. You don't like what the Bible says. Lots of people don't like what the Bible says. But let's not be mistaken about what the Bible says or doesn't say. The Bible teaches that Christ's death for us was a substitution. That he is our substitute, that he died in our place, that had he not suffered and died, we would have to suffer and die eternally ourselves for our crimes against a holy and a righteous God. This is why the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected and killed. But as you know, there is one other thing he must do, and that is he must rise again from the dead. And just as it was necessary for him to suffer, be rejected and died in order to pay for our sins, so he also had to rise from the dead to show that the payment was accepted for our sins and also to conquer death. And that's what he did. And he did that on our behalf. Remember we talked about uh, Jesus using the term the son of man. We talked about how that term is really a messianic term and it goes back to Daniel chapter seven where there's that picture of, of the son of man who comes to the ancient of days and he's given dominion over all of the nations and so forth. That's one of the meanings of the son of man. But then the other meaning is that as Isaiah chapter nine says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So he's the son that's given to man. He's the son that is given to save man, given to redeem man. And so he does that by sacrificing his life on our behalf, but then rising again from the dead. 
And Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And when we first, when we first read that, we might just think that, well, first fruits, that just obviously means the first in order. It does mean that, but it means more than that. Because in the Jewish world, you had these various feasts of the Lord that the people would celebrate and those feasts would all tell you something about God's redemptive plan. There is a feast called the Feast of First Fruits. And on the, on the Feast of First Fruits, what would happen is the priest would go before the Lord with a wave offering, a wave meaning they, they waved it in front of the Lord. And it would be the first fruit of the harvest. And that first fruit of the harvest was a representative of all the harvest that was to come. And guess when that day of first fruit was on? Guess when it fell? It fell on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus died on the Passover. Guess what? He rose again from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And so when Paul says that he's the first fruits of those who rise from the dead, what he's talking about is he's the one who rose from the dead and is representative of all that will now rise from the dead because of what he did. So because he lives, we will live also. And so he must rise again to conquer death and to then give us the power to rise from the dead. So that's why the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, die and rise again. Now, as we wind things down, I wanna, I wanna wrap things up by talking just for a moment about what's happened, not just today, but it, like I said, it's becoming more prevalent. What has happened in people's minds that have led to this resistance toward the substitutionary death of Christ, toward the idea that, that um, Jesus had to be punished in our place because we deserve punishment. Here, here's how it's happened. It's happened because people have uh, thought of God only in terms of God being a loving God. Now, it does seem that quite often you have this, it, this is just the way it so often works. You, you have views that are at one end of the spectrum or the other. So, of course, we can all think of those people who have emphasized the judgment of God, the wrath of God, God's uh, hatred of sin, all of that. Okay, yes, that, if that's all a person ever preached on, that would be an imbalance. But then there are other people who say, oh, that, that's not the God of the Bible, so we're gonna go over here and we're gonna talk, man, God is love and he's only love and it's just all about love and God loves everybody and don't ever worry about anything. There's no such thing as hell because a God of love would never send people to hell. So what's happened? What's happened to some extent is that people have... Um, misunderstood God. God is a loving God. No question about it. God is love. The Bible actually says God is love. It's part of his very um, nature as God. He's love. He's always been love. He's not just loving. He's love. But the Bible also makes it crystal clear that God is just. He's righteous. He's holy. 
So if you try to separate those two things, you're gonna end up with a problem on one side or the other. And we're living in a time when the pendulum has swung the other direction. And so now it's just God is love, period. And that means there's no such thing as judgment. That means there's no such thing as wrath. That means that there's no way that anybody's gonna go to hell forever or anything like that because a God of love would not do that. If we keep the biblical picture of God, we'll never fall into that trap or make that mistake. The biblical picture of God is that God is love, but he's also just. And so it must be this way. Jesus had to suffer, be rejected, and die. It had to be this way, for this is the only way a just God can pardon guilty men and women. Those that see substitutionary atonement, like the person we referred to earlier, those who see uh, this doctrine as nothing more than cosmic child abuse, that's how some have referred to it. They said the idea that God punished Jesus for the sins of other people, that's immoral. That is cosmic child abuse. That is God abusing his child. As though God just took this his child Jesus and just threw him down for a sacrifice. I'm gonna kill you instead of these sinners. Have they not read their Bible? Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. Jesus gave his life. God the Father and God the Son in a covenant together. Jesus says, Father, I will give my life for them so we can bring them back to us. There's no cosmic child abuse going on here. Or like uh, the, the person we quoted from said, uh, seeing God as a potentate demanding blood. Now that is an intentional, provocative picture. A potentate demanding blood. Why not see God, and this is the accurate way to see it, why not see God as a righteous judge demanding justice. That's really what it is. And of course, sometimes in justice, there is a life that has to be given, right? And we would not be opposed to that. If, if somebody truly committed horrific crimes and they were not penalized for it, we would think that's an injustice. You know, back after the Second World War and the Holocaust and all of that, you know, they, they gathered together. They had captured all of the uh, remaining living leaders of uh, the Nazi party, all of the ones who carried out the demands and plans and so forth of the Third Reich. And they put them on trial at what is known as the Nuremberg Trials. And when they tried them, they found them guilty and they condemned many of them to death. And there was no one that thought that, well, that's not really fair. Why, why are they condemning these, these men to death? No, everybody thought this is absolutely just. This is right. These people are responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even in some cases, millions of people. And therefore, it is absolutely just that they die. If a judge would have just said, well, you know, we're just going to let you slide. We're going to let you go. There would have been a great outcry against the injustice. So God is a just judge. 
And sins are actually crimes against the high court of heaven, if you will. And so there, there has to be a payment that's made. There's a penalty. Crimes incur a penalty. And so Jesus, he bore the penalty. That is the good news. The suffering and death of Jesus is how a loving but also a just God demonstrates his love without violating his justice. You see, God could not just simply overlook. That would be unjust. And God can't be unjust because part of his nature is justice. But had he just overlooked it, it would have been unjust. So here's the dilemma, if you will, that God has. God loves humanity, but human beings are guilty. How can I, how can, how can I freely love them when they're guilty? How can I retain my justice but still love them? Here's how God does it. He, along with the Son, God the Father and God the Son, the Son is going to be the one to bear the penalty for our sins. And so the just God can then freely love us. And Paul, he makes that clear in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. Uh, and it's called a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice. That's how God does it. Let me read it to you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Paul, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set, for at, set forth as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice. That's what the word means. Jesus is the one who bore the penalty for sin. That's what a propitiation is. Uh, this is through his blood. And through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So God is showing that he retains his righteousness. His justice is still fully intact because in the forbearance of God, uh, he had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. This is how God does it. How does he retain his justice but forgive rebels? Jesus is the answer. He dies in our place. He bears the penalty for our sins. He pays for the crimes that we committed against God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And for the squeamish today, for those who just can't see that as being tenable. Remember, uh, if, you don't, if a person doesn't like that message, that's understandable. But don't try to say that the Bible doesn't teach it because the Bible does teach it. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. You see, God's law, God is a lawgiver. He's a judge. And, and God's law, all human laws are to some degree related back to God's law. But have you ever noticed that the law is inflexible? The law, the law, the, if, if the laws were flexible, then they're not laws. Laws are inflexible. And I've had the experience, and maybe you have too, of unintentionally breaking laws and nevertheless having to pay the penalty for that. I remember years ago, driving up the five from when we used to live down in North San Diego County and 
Cheryl wasn't with me. I don't remember what the uh, occasion was, but I had all four of my kids in the car and we're driving up and they were being wild as kids would be. And I was speeding and I didn't really know I was speeding. I wasn't paying attention. I was probably trying to keep the kids from killing each other or something. And, but you know, I'm just barreling up the five there and suddenly I see the red lights flashing and highway patrols pulling me over. And, and as I stopped the car and I realized, oh gosh, I was speeding. In, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, this is gonna be easy. I'm just gonna say, oh, officer, I am so sorry. You're right, I was speeding. I had no idea I was speeding. I was a little bit distracted. Uh, man, I agree with you. I need to go the speed limit and this is all good and thank you. And I will make sure I don't do that again. And I more or less said that to him when he came up to the car. And you know what that did? Did absolutely nothing. He just kept writing. I don't know if they still write tickets out, but he, he just kept writing. And then he just handed me a ticket. Have a good day. See you later. That was the end of it. No flexibility whatsoever. I was like, wait, I didn't intend to do this. I, I wasn't trying to speed. That didn't matter because that's how the law is. It's inflexible. And God's law is like that. Now, we might try to plead like, well, I didn't know I was breaking your law. I didn't mean to break your law. And in, on some occasions, I would say that, that there's probably truth to that. But I would also say that there are many occasions when we knew exactly what we were doing. So we are repeat offenders. We have been breaking God's laws our whole life. And this incurs a debt. And the debt is the soul that sins must die. That's the justice of God. But the love of God says, but I don't want them to die. I want to save them. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to send my one and only son and he's going to pay the price and we are together going to redeem them by paying the penalty and bringing them into fellowship with us. That's the gospel. And for this poor fellow who is embarrassed by this and for, for this person who thinks that this is just not, it's a hindrance to evangelism in the 21st century, let me tell you this, if you don't have this gospel, you don't have any good news to tell anybody. There, there is no such thing as evangelism apart from this message that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And so that's the reality. So the question is, after now, I think, answering the question, why did it have to be this way? Why, why was it that, that Jesus had to suffer, be rejected, and die, and so forth? The, the final question is then, um, what must we do? What do we do now? This is what God has done. What do we do now? Well, there's a great answer to that in a Bible story. In Acts 16, maybe you remember the story. The, uh, Paul and Silas are in Philippi. They get in trouble. They disturb the peace by preaching the gospel. They get thrown in jail. And they're in the jail. They're praising the Lord. It's late at night. They're singing songs. Suddenly there's an earthquake and all the gates of the jail open up. And the jailer thinks that all of his prisoners have escaped. Now, if you're a Roman jailer and you lose your prisoners, then you die. They put you to death. So he thinks that everybody's escaped. So he pulls out his sword. He starts to take his own life. Paul cries out and says, don't do that. Don't harm yourself. We're all still here. 
And so the man now, he comes in, he falls down before uh, Paul and Silas. He's the jailkeeper. He falls down and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. That's it. Jesus said, these things must happen. And this man said, what must I do? Jesus had to die and rise again. We have to believe in him if we will be saved. And so that's the good news. That's the gospel. The substitutionary death of Christ. He died instead of us. He died in our place. We should have died for the crimes that we've committed against heaven. But Jesus took our place on the cross because of his love, because of the Father's love for us. And as we now believe that, then we enter into what he provided for us. And that is forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. So Lord, we thank you that you have answered for us in your word why it must be so. Why you had to suffer and be rejected and die and rise again. And Lord, we thank you that this is, this is true because Lord, if we're honest, we all know we're sinners. We all know we're guilty. Even though we might protest, even though we might try to deny it or we might try to justify it, at the end of the day, Lord, we know that we have broken your law. And we thank you that you sent your son to pay the penalty for that, for the wages of sin or death. And Lord, for us, that would just mean being assigned in outer darkness, away from you forever. But you didn't want that. And so Jesus came and how we thank you for that today. And Lord, I pray if there's a single person with us that is yet to receive the pardon that Jesus offers, that they would open their hearts and receive that today. And Lord, I pray for... Uh, those of us who believe this to be true already. Lord, may we think more deeply about these things and may we find that we are even more thankful and appreciative. And in response to all you've done for us, may we yield ourselves more thoroughly to you in the days ahead. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen.